Hello again, I'm Jim Bartlett. Welcome to my podcast. It's a companion to my website, The Hits Just Keep On Coming. This episode is called JT and the Boomers. I'm technically part of the baby boom generation, but to be more precise about it, I am a child of the 1970s, a decade in which I went from age 10 to age 20. Baby boomers and children of the 70s are clannish. We like hanging out with our own kind. We can talk to each other. We get the references. I even said as much one night a few years ago as Ann and I walked up the ramp with another boomer couple, all part of the crowd on the way to our seats at the James Taylor concert. I said, these are our people. James Taylor is, in some ways, the platonic ideal of boomer adulthood. Perceptive, honest, reliable, persistent, never taking himself too seriously, yet still able to rock and roll. He may have strolled the world with a guitar on his shoulder as a younger man, and took a lot of drugs and had some emotional problems and a broken marriage, but he grew up and became a solid and respectable member of society. When we look at James Taylor, we boomers see ourselves. He embodies our ups and downs and the poetic inspirations within them and our triumphant march into respectable middle age. We arrive at our seats in time to watch the arena fill up. Four teenage girls take the seats next to me, and for just a moment I'm tempted to ask what they're doing there. The other people around us are more typical. 40-ish guys with neatly trimmed beards, polo shirts, and baseball caps. 40-ish women showing some skin in tank tops and short skirts. For it's an outdoor concert on a July night. There are white-haired couples of Medicare age, and couples is the operative word here. For it's pretty clear that this is a date night for lots of the people who are there. After a while, the lights go down, the crowd whoops, and James Taylor strolls out from the wings, stage right, wearing a blue shirt. He's neither more nor less elaborately dressed than his audience. The ovation gets louder. He salutes it, takes a bow in response, picks up his guitar, sits down on a stool, and begins to play Secret of Life, which suggests that said secret is enjoying the passage of time. He brings out his full band, and an impressive band it is, featuring Steve Gadd on drums and Lou Marini on sax. They play Summers Here and Your Smiling Face, and by this time, the entire crowd is completely into it. Well, not the entire crowd. I notice that compared to the rest of the band, Taylor seems to be poorly miked. Soon, however, something bigger than that starts bothering me. Why does this concert feel so strange? And what is that feeling precisely? Now, before I go on, let me make clear that I consider myself a James Taylor fan. I first heard Fire and Rain when I was 10, and over the intervening years, it has always been something special. That delicate guitar laid against jarring drums, the same way that life's most precious moments can't be separated from life's hardest knocks. I believe that a hundred years from now, people will still want to hear You've Got a Friend. I think that Sweet Baby James and Mudslide Slim are two albums as good as anybody's ever made back-to-back. Throughout the 70s and into the 80s, the radio hits kept coming, and I kept listening. I'd never seen Taylor in concert, except on TV, and when his tour date nearby was announced, Ann was eager to go. All of that is on my mind as I sit there, mostly unmoved, trying to figure out why I'm not getting into it. Taylor sings Handyman, which I'd hoped he would play, but instead of finally breaking through the barrier, the song bounces off of me like all the others. From there, the band kicks into Mexico, and 22,000 people are on their feet and singing along. I have to stand if I want to see anything, and I find myself following the beat a little in my customary feet-planted, knees-bending white guy fashion. I look over at Ann and our friends, and they have all joined the celebration. I begin to feel self-conscious, not like a whore in church necessarily, but definitely like an outsider at a party. In his book Mediated, published in 2005, anthropologist and social critic Thomas DeZengotita argues that modern life is so drenched in media that we perceive ourselves as being on stage every moment. For that reason, the choices we make reflect the way we would want an audience to perceive our performance. 
even though that audience is often only ourselves. While the band is rocking out on Mexico, it hits me. Just like James Taylor, the crowd is performing. We are white middle-class baby boomers with enough disposable income to drop 150 or 200 bucks on a pair of concert tickets, and one of the requirements of our role is to sing and dance along with James Taylor. The artificiality of it, revealed to me all at once, is staggering, and the disappointment that comes with it is powerful too. Taylor wraps the first set with fire and rain, and I close my eyes at those first delicate notes, hoping that maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not. This isn't going to turn around. This isn't going to be one of those transcendent concert experiences. It's the night being a baby boomer jumps the shark. My reaction to the second set is probably unfair to Taylor, since it's shaped by the realization I'd had with Mexico. But I find myself wishing he'd just get done already. He'd done a brief bit before intermission in which he found a list of songs at his feet. He held it up and joked that the songs would make a fine set. I guessed at the time that there were about 12 songs on it, and now I find myself counting them and checking my watch. After a while, the up-tempo numbers, such as Steamroller Blues and How Sweet It Is, and the crowd's reaction to each, start to seem like parody. Despite his age and ours, he's playing at Rockstar, and we're playing at still being cool enough to rock and roll. The ritual of begging for the encore is followed by Up on the Roof, never a favorite of mine, and Summertime Blues. That's more Rockstar parody, I think to myself, because Taylor is best as a balladeer, and I've never found him convincing as a rock singer. I hold out a small glimmer of hope that the second encore might be You've Got a Friend and that it might somehow redeem the whole night. But it isn't, and it doesn't. I don't see how my body language during the encores can be especially neutral. It must be, however. When I mention to Anne on the way out of the arena how dull I'd found the second set, she's flabbergasted. On the way home, I ask one of our friends, who's seen Taylor three times before, how this show compared to the others. She says he seemed more relaxed and spontaneous than she's ever seen him, signing autographs for people in the front rows and bantering with them and with his musicians. I don't confess what I felt about the show, and the subject never comes up again. Understanding the point of James Taylor's performance is easy. He's a working musician, and if people are still willing to pay premium prices to watch him work, he'd be foolish to leave the money on the table. Understanding the point of the audience's performance is harder. Why were we there exactly? Why did we load up the CD players in our mid-sizes and minivans with Sweet Baby James or October Road and make this particular scene? Was it just an evening's diversion? Was it a ritual of tribal solidarity? Or was it another act in our personal productions of Real Life, the series? In the days after the show, I argued with myself about this. I said, Taylor's concert is the opposite of a mediated performance. What's more real than being right there in the hall while the man himself, a man you've listened to for decades and who has no greater agenda than playing some of his songs, is just a few dozen feet away? But then I read some of the reviews of earlier shows on the tour. I learned that Taylor's Everyman Blue shirt is one he's worn before. And I learned that the joke about finding the list for the second set, which seemed so spontaneous, is actually a part of every show. So the spontaneity wasn't spontaneous at all. But here's the thing. It didn't matter. The audience's happy laughter and self-satisfied feeling of identification with Taylor as a regular guy making the sort of hyper-clever joke we'd want to make if we were in his shoes was exactly what our role required. We'd have played it that way whether the joke was real or not. Unpacking stuff in this way is like peeling an onion, only the onion's layers corkscrew back on one another instead of coming apart distinctly. The difference between showmanship and manipulation. The difference between being entertained and understanding that we're being entertained. The difference between the people we were in the 1970s and the more mediated people we are now. 
Baby boomers are the navel-gazingest generation in human history. We are forever examining our lives and times and thinking about what it all means. On those occasions when I've pondered the reasons for my nostalgia habit, I've settled on the idea that nostalgia is shelter from the present. The present often disappoints us. The past seems seductively right, and it seems right even when we know that it wasn't. But that can't be all of it. When we put on Mudslide Slim in the Blue Horizon, it's not necessarily because we want to relive the summer of 1971. Maybe reminding ourselves of our past via James Taylor or any of the other ways we might do it is a way of reminding ourselves of where we came from. Consciousness of our roots is important to the part we play as Americans. No matter how successful we become, no matter how deeply we get into the role of middle-class suburbanite on the ladder of success, we want to show that we've never forgotten the farm or the college or the people who raised us. And if we're still listening to the music we listened to in those days, surely we are not far removed from all that, or from the values that go with all that. The music signifies what we'd like to think we are. Or to put it another way, it signifies how we'd like the audience to think we are. Because there's always an audience. As Thomas Dezengotita reminds us, the audience is in large part ourselves. Here's one way that works. If you asked me to name my favorite jazz musicians, I'd name Miles Davis pretty quickly. But I'm going to make a confession. I often either don't get what Miles is doing, or I just don't like it all that much. But I still listen to Miles now and then because I want to be the kind of person who listens to Miles Davis, and I want the audience to think of me as that kind of person, even when the audience is just Anne and me sitting in the living room. That feels qualitatively different from being a person who listens to Miles because he likes the music, but as far as my audience is concerned, it's enough. This is another corkscrew onion. Do you like what you like because you like it? Or is it because you like the idea of people seeing you like it? Is it possible to tell the difference? Does the difference even matter anymore? I am never willing to discount the possibility that I could be entirely wrong. A willingness to doubt my entire argument is part of the character I play. But I'm probably not wrong. Thomas DeZangotita argues that for us, everything is surfaces without depth and without edges. We don't take time for depth, and our mediated existence automatically sands off the edges. I'd read about the concept and thought about it, but I'd never really seen it up close until the James Taylor concert. An experience entirely about surfaces. A scene with 22,000 actors performing their self-scripted parts and then cheering themselves and their performance as much as they were cheering for Taylor. When I wrote about this experience at my website, a reader responded with a comment and a question that caused me to go off in another direction. He said, What I find perplexing is why so few of the baby boomers, of which I am one, have graduated to more serious music. Where is Shostakovich or John Adams? There's music being made that does not just reflect our self-image, but asks more of us. This I find to be one of the big disappointments of the boomer generation. We are stuck in a self-reflective swamp. As I said a few minutes ago, boomers are the navel-gazingest generation in history. Everything that happened in our lives we find interesting because it happened to us. This can be true for people in any society prosperous enough to have the leisure time for self-reflection. The difference with the boomers as a whole is probably our level of obsession with it. The critical mass of boomers and the position we occupy today, especially in the media, multiplies the effect. I suspect that every future generation is going to navigate its own self-reflective swamp as it takes its turn at the wheel of the culture machine, although maybe not a swamp as big as that of the boomers, since boomer culture is relatively homogenous while succeeding generations grow ever more atomized. As to why boomers have not graduated to more serious music... I don't believe that's the normal course of things, and it never has been. During the 30s, jazz, more complicated and sophisticated than pop, was ascendant. 
but its fans and players weren't necessarily taken seriously by the older folks who appointed themselves arbiters of artistic value. Young jazz fans of the 30s who had kids in the 40s were wondering by the 60s why their kids were listening to such frivolous crap. The Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, and so forth. Those Hendrix-worshipping kids would eventually wonder what their children found appealing about hip-hop. Dial it back to the ragtime era of the early 20th century, and it's the same pattern. Why won't the kids grow up and have better taste? That's always been the question. Another reader suggested a contributing reason to our failure to graduate might be a general decline in music literacy over time. There's little doubt that this has happened over both the long term and the short term. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, a musical instrument of some kind was a feature of every respectable middle-class home. Educated young people were expected to know how to play. In the days before recorded music and other forms of plug-and-play entertainment, you had to make your own fun. A spinet, parlor organ, zither, or whatever the hell was how you did it. But I suspect that the piano was also a more important part of the home in the late 20th century than it is here in the 21st. When we were little, my brother and I loved to listen to our mother play, and I took piano lessons myself for a couple of years. It was just long enough to learn to read music a little, so that when I picked up the tenor saxophone in the sixth grade, I was a bit ahead of the curve. My brother took guitar lessons before taking up the trombone and becoming a more serious musician than I ever was, but neither of us is playing today. And I wonder how many kids in music education today will still be playing when they're grown. I have friends and relatives whose kids are taking violin, which seems to me like the quintessential instrument you'll give up before too long and never go back. You're not going to whip out the violin at a party one night in your 30s, but you may sit down at the piano. The piano and the guitar encourage audience participation in a way the violin does not. Would I have been interested in playing if my mother had been a violinist? Maybe, if she were a good one. She was good enough at the piano to make it seem like fun, and that was all we needed. Yet another reader chimed in to say that music doesn't have to be classical to ask more of us. He said that he wasn't equipped to appreciate Kraftwerk, Joy Division, or David Bowie's more challenging stuff as a teenager, but he gets them now. That's my own experience with certain artists and albums as well. This isn't because we're smarter than we used to be. It's more a function of having been through whatever mill we've been through and the kind of person we've become as a result. Baby boomers and succeeding generations live in a world that doesn't require us to grow up the way pre-boomers did, but we still put away childish things now and then. Maybe we're more open to new experiences. Maybe the old experiences don't get us off like they used to. There's an argument that a certain segment of the boomer generation did change its taste somewhat. It happened during that early 80s pocket between disco and MTV. Between 1980 and 1982, top 40 stations were rife with tasteful adult ballads and funkless medium-tempo love songs, as unthreatening as a glass of milk and in some cases about as interesting. They have melodies that sound familiar from the first time you hear them. They're easy to bob your head to or tap your foot to, perfect for in-office radio listening, and innocuous enough to vanish from consciousness until they come up again in the radio rotation three hours later. The musicians making them were, in many cases, baby boomers, who'd grown up with Elvis and Chuck Berry and the Beatles and the Stones, but they did not choose to follow precisely in the footsteps of their idols. Over the years, a number of writers have tried explaining this phenomenon, why your Michael McDonald's and Peter Cetera's, who were in their early to middle 30s at the dawn of the 80s, seem so much older than pop stars of today who are the same age or older today than McDee and Cetera were back then. My guess is that what was happening in the early 80s was the big chillification of the boomers, after an adventuresome, even extended adolescence, they were discovering that you cannot be a barefoot revolutionary forever. Burning down the system is a lot less attractive when you have kids in public school. Cocooning with the family and trying to make a decent emotional space for them and a decent living became a priority, and it frequently expressed itself through this sort of denatured pop music. 
Stop playing that goddamn guitar so loud. You'll wake the baby. The fragmentation of radio formats, which was just beginning at that time, also made it profitable for some stations to concentrate on adult pop rock, and that helped increase its reach. Today, all these years later, adolescents need never end. Popular music has been infantilized to the point at which singers pushing 40 can get away with songs better left to kids on the Disney Channel. But that's not the reason we don't graduate to more serious music either. Even when we are serious about our music, pop, rock, jazz, country, whatever, we don't listen to it the same way we study a subject in school. Music is not information we acquire and on which we build additional structures of information the way we do when we're learning algebra or Spanish. It can be, but if it commonly was, we really would graduate from pop to jazz to classical, from the Beatles to Miles Davis to Shostakovich. But music is, for most people, a diversion, a part of the broader fabric of daily life. We don't want it to ask more of us any more than we want sriracha to dominate everything we eat. Music is a garnish or a condiment. If we choose to do more with it or go different places with it, that's a choice we're free to make. But it's not something we would expect of anyone, including ourselves, because life doesn't work that way. If you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will visit my website, The Hits Just Keep On Coming, which you can easily find if you put that phrase into your favorite search engine. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will consider coming back for another episode of it and listen to earlier episodes. You can find them at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. You can also bookmark my SoundCloud or subscribe to my website to be notified about new episodes. If you're listening to this podcast on a platform where you can give it a like or a positive rating, I hope you'll do so. This is Jim Bartlett. Thanks for listening.